Welcome to worship on this beautiful Sunday morning. Let's prepare our hearts and minds to worship God as we listen to the prelude. Join together in the call to worship. All creation sings a song of praise. All creation praises God. All creation joins in praise. Listen and look all around. God's choir is singing.
please. Let's join together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come here from many places, but for one purpose. We come here to set aside this hour to focus on you and our relationship with you. So we take this opportunity to lift to you in silence the thoughts, concerns, the prayers of our heart. Amen. Let's join together in the prayer of preparation and confession. Holy and gracious God, at times we feel so frail and fragile, getting blown about by the latest crisis, by bad news, by our own short tempers and failings. You call us to hold fast to what is good, but so often we flounder, unable to find that solid thing that will center us again. Help us, we pray, help us to see you as our center and to cling to the good that you create in the world. Help us to set aside all our jealousies and prejudices, all our betrayals and lies, all that adds to the world's hurt. Help us to grow even more into Christ's likeness that we will bear his love and truth to the world. We pray in his name, amen. The Bible assures us that we have a loving and a merciful God, and whenever we confess our sins, he is quick to forgive. Amen. Well, good morning again, everybody. Those of us, those of you here in the sanctuary and those watching online and various uh, platforms online, whether it's Facebook or our own website, welcome everybody to God's house to this time of worship. I invite you, if you're sitting in the center of the aisles here, to pick up one of the pew pads that's there and pen or a pencil and write down your name and any contact information you would like to leave with us to let us know you're here, let us know who you are and how we can be in touch with you. There is a lot going on in worship today and after worship, and there are a number of announcements in the bulletin too. I'll call your attention to the, the colored pages in the middle that says, because of you, the pledge campaign is, in, uh, is running now, and you're going to hear more about that. There is a women's retreat coming up, and there is information here about that. Uh, this, this morning, after we have a reception for the Fosley family, which you'll hear about in a moment, my wife Margaret is here today to give us a special presentation on how we can make a tangible difference in our own lives to combat climate change, very practical ways we can do so. The city of Piedmont, along with lots of other cities, has what's called the Climate, Challenge, climate Change Challenge. And so she's going to tell us how we can participate in that and really make a difference locally in a global problem. Um, as I said, we're going to have other things coming on. Next Sunday, um, Bill and the choir and Steve will be over at Imani Community Church for their worship services, service at 1030, and you're invited to come join them over at Imani as we share together with our sister church. Uh, we'll be worshiping here as well, but please we invite everybody, if you are able to do so, to go over to Imani next Sunday. I do want to say, note one thing, you'll notice the flowers here behind me in the sanctuary on the altar, are in memory of 
our dear sister Aya Cook. She passed away this past week, fairly suddenly from a very long-term illness. And those of you who know the Cook families know that her husband Ron just passed about two months ago. And so our thoughts and prayers are with the Cook family and their friends and so many of us. There will be a worship service, a service and celebration of Aya coming up on Sunday, November the 10th, here in the sanctuary at 2 p.m. We'll have a joint worship service, a joint celebration of life for Aya and for Ron Cook. Now I want to invite Steve Main to come up for a very short announcement. Sort of too short announcements, actually. So the first one is, uh, is to remind you that even though it doesn't feel like Christmas at all yet, which is great, in two short months, it will. And part of the reason it will is that we will have an orchestra here filling this pit in front of us, and my choir is here, and more orchestra up there. I'm never sure how we shoehorn them all in, but we do. It's a, it's a major way that we welcome in your Christmas holiday and celebrations for you here at Piedmont Church. It's our annual tradition of the uh, Christmas concert with choir and orchestra and fantastic reception over there. If you've been to this, you know exactly what it all is, and it's, it's absolutely splendid. Tickets will go online, but we want to make sure that you know that it's happening. It's December 7th and 8th, Saturday and Sunday at 7 o'clock, and we just want to make sure that you can attend one of those, or attend both. I do. The other little announcement is that uh, this afternoon, I'm playing an organ recital here, a pick-a-party organ recital. It's to benefit missions. It happens at 5 o'clock, and I was told that there are still plenty of spaces. We meet over here and have a little wine and bring it in. It's the only time you can have wine in here when it's not communion. And then I play the organ and uh, talk about the music, and we have a big screen where you can watch my feet play (laughs) the organ. Anyway, so be here today. Watch. That's watch, not wash. Be here today at 5 o'clock for the organ recital today. Thank you so much. I'd like to uh, call forth the Fosley family uh, to introduce them to you this, this day. Come on up here to the top level here. How you doing, man? Good to see you, buddy. Yeah, come on up here, guys. So um, a month ago, uh, the Fosley family uh, made the long journey from Kandahar, Afghanistan. Uh, We met them at the uh, airport in Oakland. Uh, They are now living at an apartment in uh, San Leandro. Uh, And I would like to introduce them. Mahmoud and Fazia are the parents. And we also have Arzu, who's 15. Mamun, who's 12. Yosef, who's nine, Muhammad, six, and Hasiba, four. It's, we're so delighted to have them here. Uh, we, many of us have had an opportunity to uh, spend time with them, and all of you are getting an opportunity to meet them, because following the service right here in the Barton Room, we're having a little reception. We've got some cake and some refreshments. There's an opportunity to meet them and an opportunity to sign up to some of the jobs that we need uh, for the task force. And so I'll see you over there following this service. Thanks. You guys can be dismissed. And Scott Willis is going to come forward and talk to us. Oh, he's up here. Okay. Scott is up here. Thanks. You guys can go ahead and have a seat there. 
And Scott's going to talk to us a little bit. Hello all. It's been a great honor for the last month to be working on the Refugee Task Force with our family here and getting things going. I'm going to describe two big portions of it, what we've accomplished in the last month, and then what are the things we're moving into and where we need help. Um, so the family arrived. Uh, there was a lot of effort and energy put into getting them uh, to their brother's house where they stayed for the first eight or ten days. Um, it's a wonderful thing that uh, Mahmoud has a brother here and that he has that support in our community. Uh, but we finally got them into an apartment. Uh, the apartment was partially furnished, so we helped build out everything in the apartment, filled a lot of gaps for them, still have a few left to go. Uh, did things like get shoes for them, help get clothes, pillows, uh, you name it. There was a lot of energy that went into building out that apartment. Um, the uh, efforts right now are focused on going into uh, uh, health and getting their uh, reviews so they can get health done. Uh, a couple of the kids, the younger two, are in school. Uh, they started on Monday, so they've been taking, uh, getting started with that. Um, there's more health exams next week. And so it's been a really wonderful kickoff. A lot of an intense effort has gone into that. And, uh, but now we're transitioning. Things are changing a little bit. Uh, they're going to be uh, focusing on uh, getting a job for Mahmoud. He's had th uh, gone to a job fair and has had three interviews so far with the potential of one turning into something good. Uh, we are also now focusing more on education now that the kids are starting to go to school. We know that there's going to need to have support in English and in mathematics, and so we're looking at ways to support them with that. Uh, there's also the idea of um, dental care. Health care is turning out to be, you know, the family's in good shape, but dental care is the next pathway that we have to guide them through. Um, we're also looking for uh, support with general transportation, so the ability to, to have a call list of people somebody needs to get from A to B. We'd like to be able to reach out into the community and, and have a, a, a mechanism to get that transportation needed. You can hear Bill say that they are in San Leandro, so it's a, it's a different sort of challenge than what Walnut Creek would have been. It's easier and more straightforward. Um, and finally, the last um, item that we're looking for direct help with is um, somebody to support the driver's license effort for Mahmood. So that, that's uh, education about it, uh, getting through the written, getting through the driving, and getting him a, a, a driver's license so that he can own a car and use that to get to work. So those are the things we're working with. I think it's um, well within the means of this church, this body, and the, the 9 o'clock body to step up and help that. We have sign-up table in there. I'd be glad to speak with you and talk more detail about what the, some of the commitments look like uh, during our uh, cake and lemonade session. I just want to take one last final second. I know we're busy today. But I would like to thank uh, Christine McCabe, uh, Susan uh, Beckenhoff, Chris Monty, Bob Wright, and Judy Wright for the work that they have put in in the last month to really make this happen. Uh, so far, it has been incredible, and I appreciate your, your contribution to this. So the people that he just mentioned are a very, uh, the small team of people uh, doing a lot of work. So we do need, 
we need some more hands. Many hands make light work and we really need some more help with this project. Please stop by and sign up for one of the duties over in the Barton Room as well. We have a minute for mission here. Archie is here from Destiny Arts. Hi, good morning. My name is Archie Nagraj, and I'm honored to serve as the executive director of Destiny Art Center. I'm grateful to be in this room with all of you. Sorry, my son's in the back waving. Um, and I'm so appreciative of the many years of support from the Piedmont Community Church. Thank you for your ongoing support of Destiny Art Center. Destiny's mission is to ignite and inspire social change through the arts. We're a nationally recognized leader in creative youth development, and our programs combine youth development with trauma-informed care and culturally relevant art forms to help 3,000 young people a year, aged 3 to 18, become peaceful, powerful, and creative. Our programming is centered around the movement arts, so which include hip-hop, theater, martial arts, African dance. We run programs at 26 public schools in Oakland, community sites, and juvenile justice centers serving 2,500 young people per year. We're currently at every single elementary school in West Oakland and a number of schools in East Oakland. Most of our school partners are Title I schools, which means that 90% of the children at those schools are under the federal poverty line. Through these programs, we provide 90,000 hours of instruction per year to young people who would not otherwise have access to high-quality arts programs. All of our community programs are free for program participants. We also have a center in North Oakland where we run after school, Saturday programs, and summer camps where we serve an additional 500 young people a year. All of our programs at our center are sliding scale, so no one is ever turned away for lack of funds. We don't do scholarship applications. We don't ask people to apply for financial aid. We just ask families to pay what they feel like they can and so that there's no shame in, term, in, in asking for support. At our center, we also have three performance companies, the Destiny Junior Company, the Destiny Arts Youth Performance Company, and a new elders program, which is made up of 15 grandmothers. Last year, the Destiny Arts Youth Performance Company won one of our nation's most prestigious awards, the National Arts and Humanities Youth Program Award. Right now, they're performing at Bioneers, and just last week, they performed at the Fox Theater, opening up for The Roots and Janelle Monet. This spring, the Destiny Arts Youth Performance Company is honored to be creating a show called The Black Hole, which is about young people in Oakland who have been killed before the age of 30. We're doing this work in partnership with Bark Mark Bumuthi-Joseph, who is a world-renowned artist, and Brett Cook, who's a local muralist. The Piedmont Community Church has provided support for Destiny for many years, including helping us purchase our building, supporting the growth of our school and community programs, and building a professional black box theater at Destiny, which enables our youth to perform on a professional stage, something which many of them never ever thought would be possible. In two weeks, on November 2nd, we have a partner organization from Kolkata, India. They're bringing young people who are performing, um, I don't know if you know the epic Ramayana, which is a Hindu, Hindu epic. We're doing a retelling of that story from the female perspective and combining hip-hop and classical Indian dance and performing this on the stage that you all helped us build. In addition, two members of this church have been very active in Destiny's leadership and have really helped guide and sustain the organization 
over the last many years. Bob Cheatham used to serve on our board of directors, and Maureen Recker is currently on our board. While Destiny has grown a great deal, we still have a lot of work to do, and we continue to need the support of our partners as we move forward. Funding for arts education continues to dry up. The Oakland Unified School District continues to experience challenges with funding and school closures that uproot many of our most at-risk youth. Gentrification continues to push families into deeper East and West Oakland, farther away from services that they need. And the cost of living in the Bay Area continues to rise, making it harder for our teaching artists to even live in Oakland. And they, along with young people, are really at the core of the work we're doing. However, we remain committed to doing this work and to doing more, to bringing our programs to even more youth, and to continue being a powerful force in the lives of children and families in Oakland because we know that art can save lives. And our youth deserve high quality, powerful arts programs. Thank you so much for your ongoing support of Destiny Art Center and for helping young people become peaceful, powerful, and creative. I invite you to come visit, visit us, see what we do. Um, November 2nd is when we have Ramkahan, the showing. It's at five o'clock at our center. You could also drop in any day of the week. We have programs between three and 7 p.m and we would love to host you and have you sit. You can come and do some dancing with us or just sit and watch and see what's happening in, the, um, in our studios. And I apologize, I have to leave soon because I'm taking my eight-year-old son to see Hamilton for the first time. Um, so I'm sorry I can't stay, but thank you so much for having me and for your ongoing support of Destiny. Thank you. Thanks so much. So normally at this point in the service, I call uh, on uh, one of our members to come and give a minute for stewardship. Uh, that's kind of our normal practice. But today I'm calling on myself to give the minute for stewardship. This is my last stewardship campaign, and I'm going to miss them. <laughs> Actually, they're a mixed blessing. On the one hand, it's kind of a pain to have to raise a million and a half dollars every year to keep this ship that we call PCC afloat. But on the other hand, it's one of the great joys of my work to help move people toward generosity, to help coax people to be more generous. And it's a joy because generous people are happy people. Stingy people, misers, are not happy. Search history or literature from Ebenezer Scrooge on down. Try to find a happy miser. You won't find one. Because we're built, we're, we're built to be generous and to give. That's how God made us, whether it's time or money. There's a man named Christian Smith who's a sociologist at Notre Dame. And he, uh, he wrote a book called The Paradox of Generosity. He talks about how the conventional wisdom, which is that if you have this pile of money and you give some away, you have less, is not true. That when you give something away, you end up having more. He found this out through surveys of 2,000 people and in-depth interviews with people in their lives. He wrote this, generosity is paradoxical. Those who give receive back in turn. By spending ourselves for others' well-being, we enhance our own standing. In letting go of some of what we own, we better secure our own lives. 
By giving ourselves away, we ourselves move toward flourishing. This is not only a philosophical or religious teaching, it is a sociological fact. So we in the church try to move people toward generosity. People ask, well, how much should I give? What, what should my pledge be? And then if you read the Bible, there's really only one answer, and that's 10% of whatever you have, 10% of your income. And that's called the tithe. It means one-tenth. And this goes way back even before the Mosaic Code. This goes back to Abraham, the tradition of God saying to his people, look, let me give you some stuff. All I ask is you give me back 10%. You live on 90% of my stuff. Give me back 10%. We go even one step further in this church because we know that we're not the only people that do good in the world. So we say, okay, take your 10% and give half to the church, 5%, and then take the other five and just spread it around to the causes that you believe, believe in and that touch your heart. But let that 10% be the first thing that you decide on in your budget, not the last, not whatever's left over. So the stewardship committee this year asks that when you fill out your card, that you, there's a little chart in here so that you can see what 10% of your income would be. We can do the math for you here. Um, and uh, so we encourage you to prayerfully consider moving toward that generosity of spirit, which allows you to give some of what you have to actually end up having more. Amen. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. God, it occurs to us that our prayers are sometimes one-sided. So today our prayer is not for the usual things we pray for, but also for the opposite things. We pray today not only for the sick, but for the well. Keep us grateful for our health. We pray not only for the poor, but for the rich, who find it so hard to let go of possessions and to enter the kingdom of heaven. We pray not only for the troubled, but also for the favored ones, lest peace in the world be confused with peace of God. We pray not only for the dying, but also for the living, since they face eternity as well. We pray not only for the burdened, but also for the casual, lest indolence rot the soul. We pray not only for the president of our country, but also the people. The people, because it is they who pay, for misrule when it comes. We pray not only for missionaries on foreign shores, but for the rest of us who still don't know that in Christ there is no east or west, north or south, but one great human family in a house that grows smaller and smaller by the years. We pray not only for ministers of the gospel, but for all people of the gospel, since all who believe are called to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And Lord, finally, we pray not only for others, but also for ourselves, because salvation and righteousness begins at the household of God. And Lord, we pray also the prayer that our Lord Jesus taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever.
Amen. Thank you for that. It's always nice to hear uh, Lucy Namath play the violin. I remember she grew up in the church. I remember her when she was about that big. So now she's certainly tall and talented. So thank you, everybody, for that. Let's turn now to uh, the Old Testament lesson today, which comes to us from the prophet Jeremiah. I'm going to speak a little more uh, about the context for this passage. But just so you know from the top, 
You'll notice, I'm going to be reading from Jeremiah chapter 31, that basically means that there's been about 30 chapters in Jeremiah where he's been blasting the people of Israel, telling them how bad they are, how evil they are, and how God has been punishing them, and now they're in exile in Babylon. And so this is what he tells them that is actually kind of hopeful, and it's hopeful for us too. So let's Listen now for God's word to us today from the prophet Jeremiah. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of humans and the seed of animals. And just as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring evil, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But all shall die or all shall be responsible for their own sins. The teeth of everyone who eats sour grapes shall be set on edge, their own teeth. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray that you will grant us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the hearts and minds to understand your word and your world as best we can this day. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week I was standing out in the courtyard between services and somebody came up to me and said, Don, why do we still pay attention to the Old Testament? And I said... That's a good question. Why do we still pay attention to the Old Testament? Because if you've ever spent any time with the Old Testament, reading it or studying it, um, you will start to realize really soon that there are quite a few really disturbing and strange sayings and stories in what we call the Hebrew Bible, like in the book of Numbers, where after the Israelites defeat their enemies in battle, God commands them to kill every male among the little ones, the kids, and kill every woman who has known man intimately. But all the girls who have not known man intimately, spare for yourselves. Yikes. Then in Psalm 137, it gets worse. God tells the Israelites to bash the heads of their enemies' babies against the rocks. Not so good. You might want to avoid that passage when you're teaching Sunday school. 
And then there's the prophet Nahum, who kind of puts it all together nicely. The Lord is a jealous God who takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. Why on earth would you want to pay attention to stuff like that? So why do we still pay attention to the Old Testament? Well, there are three basic reasons. First of all, it's because if we don't pay attention to the Old Testament, the New Testament doesn't make any sense at all. Because the whole story of how God saves the world through Jesus Christ is rooted in what we find in the Old Testament. The prophets, the stories, everything we read about only makes sense in light of the Hebrew Bible. Second, as you know, I hope, Jesus was a Jew. And so for him, what we call the Old Testament, what he would have called the scriptures or the Torah and the rest of the writings, for him, it was a sacred text. So if we want to be like Jesus, somebody who studied the scriptures studiously and religiously, then we want to study and revere those sacred texts too. Finally, we pay attention to the Old Testament because even if it does contain, contain some weird and problematic stuff, there is also plenty of power, and plenty of truth, and plenty of wisdom in those ancient words. Like the passage I just read. I first remember it really when I was uh, in seminary and I was studying Old Testament and Greek or Hebrew, and then I came across this text in English that I'd never paid attention to before. The parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. What in the world does that mean? Well, in English, what do sour grapes mean? Well, when we use that phrase, we, we mean by sour grapes, somebody is sort of pretending that something that they want but they can't have really isn't all that important to them, right? It comes from, actually, one of Aesop's fables called The Fox and the Grapes. So a fox is trying to grab some delicious grapes up in a tree and he can't get it, so he convinces all the other animals that, oh, they're sour anyway and I don't want them. That's where we get our phrase sour grapes. But in Jeremiah, it means something very different. Sour grapes refers to the evil, the sin, that has been perpetrated, done by previous generations. They inevitably poison the next generation, their children, and the next generation, and the next generation, and on and on to the present day, so that the children's teeth are set on edge, like this. Everybody, no, I'm not going to ask you to do that. That's a memorable image, right? Children's teeth are set on edge, and it makes perfect sense if you think of the context to which Jeremiah is writing. Because for years, the people of Jerusalem had treated the prophet Jeremiah as, uh, as anathema. They didn't want to hear what he said. He'd been constantly telling them and warning them that if they don't change their evil ways, God's going to punish them. Bad things are going to happen. Their, their hearts are engraved with sin, he says. And they don't want to listen to that bad news or what you know we might call fake news. I don't know. So they throw Jeremiah down into a cistern 
big ditch outside of Jerusalem as a way to shut him up. But then, in 587 B.C., his words start to ring true to the people because the Babylonian Empire invades. And the city of Jerusalem is sacked. The temple where they worship God, where they think God lives, is destroyed. And the people of Israel are carried off into exile by their conquerors. And as the Bible says, by the shores of the rivers of Babylon, they remembered what Jeremiah had said. Both the bad stuff as well as the good stuff. Because along with his endless, dismal judgments and warnings, we even have a word in English for that. We call it a Jeremiah. With all of this bad news, Jeremiah also delivers a powerful message of hope that only makes sense given all the bad stuff. He says, the days are surely coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, says the Lord. It will not be like the covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. But this is the covenant that I will make. I will put my law within them. I will write it in their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. And you know, those words allowed the people of Israel in exile to dream. To dream. That one day in the future, God was going to set things right and set them free, not just from Babylon, but set them free from their sins, too, from all the evil that they had done and were, were being punished for. God will establish a new covenant. Now, it's important to know that this doesn't mean the old covenant. You know, the laws written on stone that the Bible says Moses brought down from Mount Sinai and gave to the people doesn't mean those laws are bad in any way. It's just that laws written in stone, are impossible to follow all the time. Like rocks in a quarry, human beings are going to break them. So God decides to establish a new kind of a relationship with God's chosen people. God is going to write the new covenant, not in stone, but on the human heart. God will forgive the people the record of their sins will be wiped clean and they will know God in a deeper way than they have ever known God before. In fact, it's so deep and so intimate that Jeremiah uses the metaphor of marriage. Did you hear that? He says, God, the creator of the universe, is their husband. Husband of the people of Israel. The days are surely coming when the Lord and the people will become one flesh in marriage. And you know, that kind of language should sound kind of familiar to us as Christians because we use the same image, same kind of imagery ourselves to describe our intimate relationship uh, with God through Jesus Christ. We say that we are part of one body, the body of Christ. That's how close we are to God. 
And that's why this passage is the longest passage from the Old Testament that is quoted verbatim in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews. In Jesus Christ, a new covenant has been written on our hearts, which according to the Bible and the Jewish understanding of the world, the heart isn't just the seat of the emotions, kind of like we think nowadays when we think of the heart in terms of Valentine's Day or something. No, the heart is also the seat of the human will and the human intellect. Through the Spirit, the Bible tells us God is constantly reshaping us from the inside to want what God wants, to love as God loves, and to do what needs doing so that all of creation can flourish. Now, that being said, do we do that all the time? I don't know about you, but no, I don't. Like the Jews in Babylon and like Christians and people throughout the ages, I am also waiting for that day of consummation when God completes the work of regeneration in me and in you and in this world. There's still a long way to go. Because as we all know, the human heart is a complicated organ, whether you're talking about it scientifically or spiritually. And the heart leads where it leads. For example, just yesterday I did something I knew I shouldn't do. You want me to tell you what it was? Of course you do. Of course you want to hear what the pastor did wrong yesterday. I didn't want to do it, but I couldn't help myself. I threw a plastic bottle in the trash rather than recycle. (laughs) Okay, I really didn't do that, (laughs) if you know me. I told my wife, though, that I did do it as a joke. And as I said earlier, she's going to be here later to talk about very practical ways that we can uh, make a change to uh, combat climate change. Um, So I didn't really do it. She did tell me that the joke wasn't very funny. But she forgave me for it. She's also right. It's not funny. Because we, what we all do day by day, the little choices we make the, or the things we do without consciously thinking about it or the things we don't do at all, it all is a cumulative effect. It has an impact on the physical health of our planet, but also on the spiritual health of our heart. I mean, here's the thing. I don't want my actions or my inactions to be the sour grapes that set my own kids' teeth on edge when they have to deal with the consequences of climate change long after I'm gone. But sometimes, you know, I can't help it. Sometimes I do throw a plastic bottle in the trash. That's the truth. My heart makes me do hurtful things. And so does yours. So does yours. Whether it damages the climate or causes pain in some other way to other people or to creation or to God or to yourself, we all experience heart failure. Or as St. Paul says in Romans, I want to do good. 
but I don't really do it. I don't want to do bad, but then I do it anyway. Something has gone wrong deep within me, and it gets the better of me every time. Wretched man that I am, is there no one who can save me? Well, if you've read the Bible, you know that's a rhetorical question, right? Because in St. Paul's words, and in his heart, he knows there is someone to save us. Jesus Christ saves us from this condition. Because the God of creation who made all things and called them good and who calls you and me to be good stewards of all that was made, the God we meet in Jesus Christ is at work right now in our hearts to build and to plant and to renew from the inside out. So this morning I invite you to pay attention. Pay attention. Open your heart. Open your eyes. Open your ears to wherever God is already busy setting things right and setting people free. God's at work, you know, in all sorts of people who are just as mixed up as you and I are. But somehow they are made, able to make good choices about how to live and how to act in this world according to God's will. And sometimes, you know, they just seem to do it naturally, without even thinking about it. And we all do it. We all do it from time to time. We may say we acted out of intuition or from second nature, but maybe what we mean is that we did something good because a new covenant has been written on our hearts. So getting back to the metaphor of marriage for a second, you can think of the new covenant written on the heart as faithfulness. When a couple gets married, the minister, the rabbi, whatever, they ask the couple to make a promise to be faithful to each other. Till death do us part, or words to that effect, a rule or a law is lifted up before these two people, a law they are supposed to obey. And they say out loud before God and everybody else that they're always going to be faithful to each other. Now, does it always work out? No, of course not. It doesn't. But, you know, it also goes like this. In the first days and weeks and maybe years of a marriage, there are going to be all sorts of situations where uh, the couple have to be intentional, very intentional about keeping their vows. They have to pause and they have to think, wait a minute, I'm married. I made a vow to be faithful in front of God and everybody else. So I've got to keep my promise. But then, you know, over time in a good marriage or in any other kind of good relationship between two people that you find yourselves in, two people discover that they're no longer just trying real hard to be faithful. They're not just keeping a promise by thinking about it and being true to one another. No, they're simply faithful. It's as if God has written a covenant on their hearts. What they previously had to do with lots of effort, they now do by heart. 
The promise they thought they were obeying has now become part of who they are. So maybe that's why you're here today. You're ready for something new. You're ready to start over in some way. You're facing a situation in your life or your marriage or your relationships, whatever, which seems out of your control or or changing willy-nilly and you're caught up in it. And the truth is, maybe you cannot change your external circumstances all that much. But with God's help, you can change internally. And it starts by paying attention to your heart. Now, one of my heroes is, or was, Howard Thurman. Some of you may have heard of Dr. Thurman. He was a man of deep faith and intellect. He was the, one of the mentors of Martin Luther King Jr. and many of the civil rights uh, leaders. He was also a dean at Howard University and at Boston University. In his book, Meditations of the Heart, there is a poem called Centering Down. And I want to close with it today as an invitation for you to consider your heart. The place deep down where you are most authentically yourself, for good and for bad, and the place where God already is waiting desperately for you to to center down for the comfort and the challenge and the love and the mercy that God already has for you inside. So here's the poem, Centering Down. How good it is to center down, to sit quietly and see one's life pass by. The streets of our minds seethe with endless traffic. Our spirits resound with clashings, with noisy silences, while something deep within hungers and thirsts for the still moment and the resting lull. With full intensity we seek, ere the quiet passes, a fresh sense of order in our living, a direction, a strong, sure purpose that will structure our confusion and bring meaning in our chaos. We look at ourselves in this waiting moment, the kinds of people we are, the questions persist. What are we doing with our lives? What are the motives that order our days? What is the end of our doings? Where are we trying to go? Where do we put the emphasis and where are our values focused? For what end do we make sacrifices? Where is my treasure and what do I love most in life? What do I hate most in life and to what am I true? Over and over the questions beat in upon the waiting moment. As we listen, floating up through all the jangling echoes of our turbulence, there is a sound of another kind, a deeper note, which only the stillness of the heart makes clear. It moves directly to the core of our being. Our questions are answered, our spirits refreshed, and we move back into the traffic of our daily round with the peace of the eternal in our step. How good it is to center down. Amen.
I hope you'll take a moment after this service to come to the reception and welcome the Fosley family to America. Let's join together in the prayer of thanksgiving. All good gifts come from you, holy God, and you reveal glimpses of grace through them. Thank you for inviting us to be partners with you in caring for your creation. We offer these gifts now, knowing that we depend upon you and your creation for all that we call ours. Please accept these gifts and our desire to be your partners. In Jesus' name, amen.
Brothers and sisters, as you leave this sanctuary, take with you whatever you have received, whether sight or sound or an experience that has given you a sense of God's grace and love and mercy in your life. Listen to your heart. Pay attention to your heart. Do what God has called you to do, both today and in days ahead. I also invite you to join with us, Margaret and myself, for the discussion on what we can tangibly do for climate change in our own town, something that she and I have been working on a lot recently. And so join with us, but whatever you do as you leave this place, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be and abide with each and every one of you, both now and forevermore. Amen.